Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm here today with uh, Job Slengrip and Barry Smith. Uh, they're the authors of Why Machines Will Never Rule the World, Artificial Intelligence uh, Without Fear. Um, before we get into it, can each of you uh, give a short biography, um, just your background and how you came to write this book? Barry, you start? Yep. Okay, I'll start. So I'm a philosopher by training. Um, I worked for quite a while applying philosophical ideas in other sciences, including biology and medicine. And in this connection, I came into contact with Jobst, who was working as a uh, high-level consultant to pharma companies and the like. And we decided that we both had very similar views about the way, uh, I don't want to use the word scam, <laughs> but the way in which the health industry is very often infected by over-ambitious views as to the uh, capabilities of computers. And this led slowly but surely to uh, our working together on this book. And okay. Yops, what's your background? Yeah, thank you. So um, I'm, by training, a physician, biochemist, and mathematician. I also studied a bit of philosophy. And um, I received my, um, my PhD in biochemistry in '98. And after that, I worked quite a long time in academia before I then went into consulting, strategy consulting. And that's where I met Barry. I've, I've, been, uh, I've done AI um, research and applications since 1998. Um, and and um, I'm, uh, I have a, I'm an entrepreneur. I have a small company that does AI consulting, but also some AI software engineering. And my I wrote, I wanted to write the book because my customers were, we're all the time asking, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And I always said it because it doesn't work. And then they didn't believe me. And then finally I started, I, I, I thought that Barry and I could write a paper about it, which we did. And then after the paper, we wrote another paper and then we thought, let's do a book. And so that's about the topic. And that's how we came to write the book. And, um, that, that was my, my motive as an entrepreneur, but I also have a motive, of course, as a, as a scientist, because I think that it, it was high time that somebody, you know, describes the, the, the limitations of AI properly because there's so much hype and it's so nonsensical that I thought we need to really properly analyze it once. Okay. Yeah. So the book, I mean, the book caught my eye because the, uh, the, you know, the title is not subtle. Why machines will never rule the world. So it's not talking about next, next month or next year or current technology. Uh, it's, it's saying that basically there's something impossible, you know, there's some impossibility here that people are, are promising. So, um, you know, it's a heavy book, a lot of ideas, a lot of mathematical equations. Um, if you could just sort of summarize wh why, 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 what's wrong with sort of the uh, conventional view that uh, there will be a super intelligence and it'll be able to do what it wants. So first of all, I wouldn't say it's a conventional view, but it's a view taken by people who are influential in the public space, but don't know really so well what they're talking about. So people saying this, most of them are engineers but not mathematicians or physicists. So, and, and there's just one mathematician, one physicist who is quite known, um, who says it, um, uh, um, what's his name again? The one who wrote the book about time, Barry? 
Hawking. Um, yeah, Stephen uh, Hawking. Hawking. He he also says it, but he has a tendency to. He had a tendency to a bit of yellow press tendency and popularization tendency. Plus, I think he never looked at the problem really carefully. But the mathematicians and physicists and all the many computer scientists to look at it properly, they recognize that it can't be done. And we, we also mentioned many of them in the book, in the first part of the book. Now, that said, the core reason why we think that it will never be possible is that we, because we believe that, or we, I think we know that, um, that the, the, our ability to model systems using mathematics, which is the foundation of AI, is very limited. So there, there's only a small part of reality that we can really model mathematically in an adequate way so that it works. And, and that's the reason because the reality of intelligence is so super complex that our mathematical models cannot capture it. That's the core argument of the book. And maybe I can add a few things. So first of all, if you try and understand how the brain works, then you, you're, you very, very reach a, a limit to what you can represent mathematically. And if you look at textbooks of neurology, there are very few equations in those textbooks. So in order to build a device which would mimic the operations of the, of the brain in performing intelligent behavior, you would need to have a, an entirely new kind of mathematics. And, and also you would need to have huge amounts of imaging data at resolutions which would be orders of magnitude finer than what we can achieve physically. And so for all of those reasons, the, uh, the, the complexity of intelligent behavior is be beyond the reach of, of um, mathematics. Now, if it's, if it's beyond the reach of mathematics, then it's beyond the reach of mechanical or electronic devices because they need mathematics to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, and that, that, that makes sense. You know, so the idea is that basically mathematical modeling, I think some people maybe have this view that it's, you know, some kind of, uh, uh, magic, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it does, it, it can basically do anything you said. You just, you know, need more computing power, you need more effort or need more scientific, right? But you're, you're basically saying, I mean, you, you have, uh, you, uh, emphasize some ideas like the turbulence and the, these things that we cannot ma model at all. And what, you know, the way you put it in the book is it's like we have this idea that math sort of explains the world, but explains very little. I could explain gravity, right? Because it's the one force dominates everything. Uh, but then you add a little bit of complexity and you, you simply can't explain what's going on. If you can't explain what's going on, you probably can't uh, invent something that requires yeah, a complex system. Is that basically the argument? Yeah, that's, that's one important aspect. So the, you were now basically um, discussing about the interactions between matter and, uh, and also uh, force overlay. These are two properties of complex systems that can't be modeled well. And so they have, they have many forces which are overlaid to create the effect, you know. And so this is very hard to model mathematically. That's one important aspect. Others are that, that complex systems like human beings, but also animals, which also are intelligent, have evolutionary properties so that they evolve all the time and that they can add new dimensions to themselves. You know, like, um, give you an example from bacteria. So if a bacterium can acquire a toxin, which can totally change its ability to invade a host and to, 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 to replicate in the host much more efficiently. Um, uh, like, uh, like, uh, Clostridium tetani, which causes tetanos, tetanos, uh, um, disease. And it has this toxin, which makes it super inf uh, efficient as an, as to infect and kill hosts. And, and so, you know, and it has acquired this during evolution and mathematical models, they can't cope with new dimensions because they are always using a fixed set of dimensions, a kind of a, 
you can imagine it like a Cartesian coordinate system, right? And you need to, when you, when you create a mathematical model, you need first to define the Cartesian coordinate system, quote unquote, I simplify a bit that you're going to use. And, and so they can't cope with evolution and there are many other properties they can't cope with. Maybe I can, uh, I can, uh, draw attention to, uh, the usage of the word intelligence. So there are clearly AI systems that can behave in ways which, in a sense, are more intelligent than the way, ways humans behave. So playing Go or playing chess, for instance, are good examples there. They can move very quickly and they can perform calculations very quickly. And this gives the impression that they're intelligent. But this is what we call narrow intelligence, which means it's along one single dimension or along a very small number of dimensions, precisely where mathematics can still work. But uh, organisms, including humans, have general intelligence, which means that we can have multiple dimensions, we can add new dimensions, we can add, create new combinations of dimensions on the fly. And that's where the big difference comes between what is achievable by artificial means and what is only achievable by something like an organism. Yeah. I think there's, uh, I think there's one part of the book you say something like, if you changed a single rule and go, uh, the 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 program would be useless, right? Yes, it would not be able to. It would just yes. be not, it would nothing, and so you'd have to start start yes, from scratch. That's the right? closed world problem, right? So, to for AI to be really successful, you need an ergodic system or a closed world where everything is at the end repetitive and where the where the dimensions are closed and and the small world also and a big open world AI can't cope with because it doesn't think it just replicates um patterns that it has so to speak encountered and that's also the case for for GPT-3 which is the foundation of ChatGPT which is now the latest rage in AI discussions but it's also just a repetitive uh, algorithm so yeah, so we're recording this in uh, yeah mid January 2023. So Chat GPT came out of, about a month ago, um, and people are people are impressed with it. I mean, it can uh, you could tell you, you could say write a play about you know X and Y going to the store and getting into a fight and then making up. Um, I saw the you know it, it could write some basic code. I saw that it could get humor. Somebody asked it you know write a joke about like why the DNA was sad or something and it, you know, write a jo- joke about uh, DNA and it said you know there was a helix and it didn't have a connection it was something like that. it got like a pun right it, it understood it so it could do jokes it could do plays um it can you know answer basic basic questions it can write an essay so wh- why is this not just sort of a matter of degrees from scaling up to that to the general intelligence because because this this algorithm the, is a sequential model so all it does is is basically it learns chains of symbols right so it's fed with trillions of of sentences and texts and all these text contains, of course, from the perspective of the algorithm, these are just chains of symbols, which are encoded as, as, as long chains of zeros and ones. And what the system does is that it basically acquires a model of the distribution of the symbols. And then when you give it um, an, inc- an incomplete, every input it, it receives is inside the system regarded as an incomplete input which, need, which needs to be completed. And then it completes it in a way um, that that corresponds to the distribution of the symbols that it ha- has encountered in the training, and this is because it is so huge. It's very amazing what it can do. So it can complete many many sequences in a very meaning, uh, seemingly meaningful way, but in reality, it doesn't understand at all what it's doing, and and therefore um, it it is it is it is everything. What it does is like a 
you know, dotted with errors and, and, and wrong statements all the time. It, 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 it doesn't create any reliable output, right? So the, 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 there are different ways in which you can measure the power of something like an AI. Uh, one way would be if it can uh, start a war against human beings, for instance, or do something equally horrible in, in some other dimension. Another way is whether it can provide something of benefit to human beings, which means monetary benefit primarily. And so the, the, the question would be, can an AI replace a human comedian in telling jokes uh, in a in a late night uh, comedy show, and I think that the joke idea that you refer to is not a, 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 an indication that they will take over from comedians. They will not be financially or, or beneficially relevant in in the comedian sphere, nor in the essay writing sphere. I would predict they can write essays, but can they write essays better than the people who are paid to write essays now? Probably not. Can they write theater, th- uh, plays which are better than Tom Stoppard or something? Probably not. So they will not, under any of those dimensions, be replacing human effort for gain, financial gain. Now, what else can they do? Can they do science? No, it's horrible what they do when they try and do science. They make, up, they make up references. They make up people. Uh, so they say, oh, this idea was invented by so-and-so, and they just made up a name out of the blue. And that's a characteristic of these uh, deep neural network type uh, approaches to AI, that they have artifacts which generate strangeness. And you can never track down where the strangeness comes from. But they do generate strangeness, and it's very hard to understand or eliminate. And the strangeness is everywhere as soon as you start poking it in specific dimensions. So they made up a whole career for me. Uh, for instance, I, I, according to um, one conversation I had with ChatGPT, I did my PhD in London. Uh, that's because there is another philosopher called Barry Smith who did his PhD in London, but he doesn't have any of the other qualities of me. Uh, so it's, it's like that. Whenever you poke it, you get weakness, and that weakness is going to mean that you can never use it for a mission-critical purpose. You can use it for writing short essays. You can use it for writing essays in school, but you can't use it for any critical purpose because it's full of made-up uh, falsehoods. Yeah, you, there was a second part of your question, which is very interesting, which we haven't answered yet, and where he was asked, and can't we imagine extrapolated, it's getting better and better. And it, it has been uh, uh, becoming better and better over the last 10 years, right? So the, the neural networks for, for, for um, sequence generation of symbols have been around. I've been observing them since... 2011, I think, actively. So I've been around for a while and, and, or 2012, I don't remember exactly, but for a while. And they have, of course, improved, but, but their basic problem hasn't improved. That basic problem is that they are purely reproductive and can only produce what they have, the distributions they've seen before. Now, the human being, human intelligence means, and now, This is taken right from our book. The definition of human intelligence is, is the ability to solve problems, um, rapidly or instantaneously without prior exercises that are completely novel. That's, that's the fundamental definition of intelligence we use. It's from Stern and, and Scheler. It's from the 1920s, but it's still a very good definition. And this is what they can't do. They can only, uh, apply situations that they have learned once. And that's also for car driving and for all the other, you know, um, uh, uh, circumstances under which uh, you can think of using AI. That's why 
AI, we don't say AI can't be used. It's a huge potential. It's applied mathematics. It can be used in many ways, but, but not to replace the ability of human beings, which I just described. Yeah. So, you know, but the problem with this, I mean, is are, are most humans intelligent under that definition? So, you know, I could ask, ask ChatGPT to, you know, write an essay about, um, uh, you know, the cause of World War One, and it can do it and it could probably get like, you know, a C or something for, a, you know, a college course. And so, you know, what is the sort of the, uh, what what is the sort of limiting principle here that will make you have to think there's something, uh, very, very sort of qualitatively different between, say, a C paper and an academic publication in the field, right? That, that, is that is that the claim? Because there, it's gone much. For, it's gone. You know, people would say. I think people would have said before. You know, this is intelligence to get a C in a college course requires some intelligence, ah, okay. right? It's not huge intelligence. Okay, but I see where you're going. So, but intelligence means that now the next thing you you ask the machine is um, is uh, to to tell you. Um, um, to solve a new problem that is hasn't encountered before, so it can write an article about World War One because there are a lot of there's a lot of material about World War One in the World Wide Web, which is replicates. But but if you ask it, um, for example, um, how does how does um, uh, the 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 uh, blitz um, very the blitz, blitzkrieg lightning no no uh, lightning how does a lightning work right how does it yeah. work then it will replicate what is said in physics textbook but it probably will not say systematically what our limits to understanding lightning are where they come from why we can't model lightning property properly and so on so it won't just it won't it will not give you the real explanation is to to describe the limitations um of 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 this and why the limitations are there and so on and what 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 are uh, research um, endeavors that could help a bit on this and so on? This is won't be able to do. So it's it's just rep- replicating things. That that's not intelligence. It's not solving new problems. Whereas every human, many many human beings who can't write an essay about World War One, I, I would say that out of the you know eight or nine eight billion inhabitants of the of the Earth, most can't write an essay about World War One. I. I agree with you, but most can solve an unexpected problem occurring in their lives. And they have to do it every day, even if they're not really consciously thinking about it. They do it, yeah. And and so they and this is this is what what um what is the difference? And um and so th- this machine is in a is acting in a very very narrow context. And there it is reproducing knowledge, and that's with some mistakes. It's still impressive, but it's not intelligent. It's just reproduction. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. So what, what I'm hearing is sort of you know maybe we're maybe we're. Uh sort of getting a little bit confused by imagining intelligence is just on a, a spectrum, a straight line. And so the computers, they can uh, do multiplication. They can run a regression, uh, you know, in a second. Um, and maybe they can write essays. And may, maybe this is really is just like a, you know, I don't want to say a lower form of intelligence, but a different kind of intelligence. They can beat humans now. I mean, at writing a World War One essay, which is, you know, which is pretty interesting. They could be, you know, a, a good portion of humanity. Um but then, you know, they can't maybe, you know, call a doctor and reschedule an appointment and, you know, whatever, something, something very, you know, maybe they can, maybe that, maybe that's not a good example, but, you know, get a, uh, you know, how do you, I think one of the examples um, uh, that I've heard somewhere, maybe, maybe it was in your book dealing with a, uh, uh, a beggar on the street. Right. This is a sort of complex problem that no artificial intelligence has applied for. So maybe, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe people would have thought they could be cops before they could write World War One essays. But maybe we were just wrong, and that was just because we misunderstood sort of the nature of machines and the nature of humans. Does that sound right? 
So let, let, let's think about what is involved when a human writes an essay about World War I. They don't just want to, well, I'm not talking now about a typical schoolboy. I'm talking about somebody, a historian, let's say, uh, or, or a, a somebody who's interested in government and good government wants to avoid World War Three. So you're writing your essay on World War One. Why did World War One happen? And you have in your mind then a desire to contribute in a number of different ways to the future of the planet. You want to avoid another war. You want to get things right. In other words, you want something. You want a lot of things, and you want your essay to be true. You want it to be correct so that your desires won't be uh, thwarted by people who want point out that you don't even understand World War One. None of those things is present in the computer. And I know that because I've been playing with ChatGPT to try and get it to want not to make mistakes. And it doesn't understand. It doesn't, it doesn't understand what it is to want not to make mistakes. And that's something that every human being, in one way or another, is capable of. We're all capable of acts of will. And so human intelligence is general, not merely in that it's uh, involving multiple dimensions, but also in, in, in that it's involving wanting to get things right or wanting to achieve something. It may be that you want to achieve something bad, but humans are always wanting. And this is one of the reasons why humans are so good at conversation, because everyone who, in, uh, who enters into a conversation has, has, has a will to achieve something through that conversation. They want to impress somebody. They want to cheat somebody. And, and both sides have wants that, which keep the conversation alive and make it t take twists and turns, which the other side couldn't anticipate. And that's one of the reasons why computers still can't pass the Turing test. Because to pass the Turing test, you have to be really good at conversation. And they've been trying to get really good at conversation for 50 years. And even today, if you call your bank, your bank's computer will, in almost every case, not be satisfied. You will not be satisfied with the encounter. You will want to speak to a human being because human beings have this kind of uh, intelligence which we all share and which human, uh, machines never will have, we say. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so before ChatGPT, there was a, a Dolly came out. Um, and this to me is, you know, I know a little bit about how the language models work. I don't know much about how this sort of uh, this art works. Um, can you talk about sort of the difference of that, how impressive that is, and what the difference between the language models and the, you know, art, the, the Dolly, which creates pictures for you? Um, well, how, what's the difference of how they work and sort of what are the implications for, for all these ideas? Yeah. So DALI and, and others, they are, at, they are adversarial networks. So they work by, you have two networks. One creates a content and the other one rates the content. And, and by, by running multiple cycles of these two networks, you get an optimized, you get an optimized, uh, picture. And, um, these pictures are, of course, not art. I mean, there are, there are pictures, obviously, you can look at them, you can recognize something. Um, but they are not, um, they are not art in the sense of human art. And that, that, that has to do with, with, uh, what art is, um, and, and what is, what is the true nature of art and the true nature of art, authenticity, originality, and formal perfection, right? And what you, this is one definition of what art, what the core of art is. And, uh, you can't, you don't have authenticity in a machine. 
which just performs an algorithm. So this 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 dimension uh, is, is is gone. It can be formally quite perfect what it does. So this criterion is fulfilled. But originality, I wouldn't say either, because the machine just combines patterns that it has observed in the corpora. It was used to train it. So I would say it's definitely not art what it's created, though it is an output that you can look at. In German, we call it Kunsthandwerk. Barry, can you translate this? Craft. Craft. Yeah, craftsmanship it is, yeah. in a way. Yeah. But it's not It's not art. But it seems like, you're, I mean, it seems like that definition sort of just it makes it by definition a machine can't do art. You say it's authenticity, right? You're, you're looking underneath the hood and you're looking at the process. Well, it's going to be a different process because it's a machine. It's not a human, right? So, you know, that, that sort of, doesn't that sort of just that definition by definition make it no matter what they would no, do, you would say because it's not art? If you look at the history of art and look what we see as great art in the history of art, then these are like a Goya or Velasquez. Right, these pictures burst with authenticity. You can see the person of the artist in the pictures. And that's the same way you read Dostoevsky or other great literary artists. A lot of their person is expressed. Um, it's what Thucydides, a uh, great uh, Greek historian, called the anthroponym, which is the what makes a human being make a human being. And in the works of art of these great artists, or you listen to to chamber music by Brahms, you know, you can hear it. This is the authenticity I'm talking about. Maybe there's an, and yes, of course, machine can't be authentic. And, and you can say, oh, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but, but it's actually not a joke. It is really what makes art desirable and wonderful is this expression of the person in the art. And that's what. So the, the, I'd like to add a, a yes. tweak to what, um, uh, just said. So, um, it turns out that if you play around with Dali, then there's a lot of human effort which is involved to create what you might think of as more valuable pictures. So if you just put the phrase in that you want to uh, have represented, you typically get a very flat cartoon that no one would uh, find admirable in any way. So if there is, in fact, still a human artist in the loop. And I, I can well imagine that in the future, human artists will be able to create great works of art by tuning Dali in ways which other human artists have not managed to do. And so you would bring in the dimension of originality. Uh, but this is this is an aspect of AI tools which is uh, typically uh, underestimated. Namely, you get good results from these AI tools only if you have good human beings who are feeding uh, feeding the right kinds of instructions to the AI tools and deciding what the right kind of data is to feed into the uh, training set for the AI tools and so on and so on. Maybe we should come to a very fundamental point that we didn't make yet, which is very important for Richard to understand. So when you, when you look at this bottle of water, there's some water left in it. The molecules in this bottle of water have an ergodic distribution. So when you take a portion of the water out of the bottle somewhere, you, you get a representative sample. Even if I shake the bottle, I wait a bit. Now it's ergodic again. You saw there were bubbles coming up. It was non-ergodic for a very short time. Now it's ergodic again. And when, and so the, the human, what the human mind creates and also what animal minds create or animal brains create is a, is a process that is non-ergotic. And so when you sample from it, that's what, what you do when you train AI systems, you sample output from non-ergotic systems. And so then you can always train them to produce something, but it will only catch the ergodic part, but the non-ergodic part where, where you is, is made in, in a way that you can never draw an, a sample that is repeated. To, another example is if you look at the waves 
um, coming to, to the ocean where you live, to the Pacific, the, each wave that ever reached the Pacific coast has a different shape at the, at the micro level. No shape is like the other. So if you now make photographs of the waves and teach a machine to generate waves, if you made many, many photos, you get waves that look from the, from a bigger perspective, like real waves. But if you analyze them at the micro level, they will not be like real waves because they will, they will, well, they will have an ergodic pattern. And this is the, this is a real important point that you can't create, you can't teach a machine non-ergodic behavior. And, and at the end, the behavior of, of natural driven systems is non, creates non-ergodic distributions. And that's the key. Um, that's a mathematical core of why we can't, the neural networks can't really become intelligent. Um, they can, they can be trained to do special tasks really well and it's admirable and we don't want to, I make a living out of it. I make a living out of helping my customers use the system. So I'm, I think it's great. It's a great form of applied mathematics, but you have to distinguish between useful applied mathematics and, and, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, um, how can I say this, uh, secularized eschatology where you suddenly think that the AI can replace the subject of your faith <laughs> that you have in religion, you know, and that, that's what, what we are observing in our society is that more and more people, you know, see AI like, like they might see God or something like this. I mean, even the book of Baba Harari is called Homo Deus because he expects humans to create things that God not only can create. So the, you know, one of the things that people who believe in the singularity say is, you know, there's a, they have this thing called the substrate, uh, independent hypothesis. So the idea is that, okay, humans is just our, you know, basically an intelligence or a personality or whatever is just process of information. And we can, you know, eventually upload that into, you know, a computer or something. And, you know, you can have you, you can be, you know, you can live forever, um, because we'll, we'll, we'll take the information that's in your mind and put it on software. And it seems like you are just, you, you call this, uh, you call this dualism. You call this sort of a, a Cartesian kind of dualism that just science has gotten rid of, but still these you know, people who believe in AI, AI the singularity, um, sort of rely on it. So can you talk about that a little bit? I, I found that idea fascinating. So shall I start? Yes. Yeah, so you, first of all, there are all kinds of technical problems that you would have to solve in order to upload the content of your mind into the cloud, which is what they have in mind. You need to have imaging of your mind, again, which would be of these very high orders of resolution, which we simply can't achieve. But more, more importantly, you'd have to, we'd have to kill you first because we can take, we can make images of your brain actually behaving intelligently only if we can get an imaging system, which would uh, look at what's going on at the deep molecular level. And we can't do that without killing you. Now, maybe we can solve those practical problems in the future, but then we would still have the mathematical problem that the, the behavior of the molecules in your brain, which brings about your intelligent behavior, the behavior which is unique to you, just as every single wave on the, uh, the, the beach uh, it, it, anywhere on the Pacific is different from every other one. So your intelligence, which is specific to you, is different from every other intelligence of every other person. And so we can't even use mathematical laws in order to generalize from a few imaging uh, data sets so that we can get some kind of generic intelligence because every human intelligence is going to be different. So for all of these reasons and other reasons which we document in the book, you can't upload the content of your mind into the, into the cloud. And if anyone opts to do that for you, you should say, well, if they go first, 
then you will you will follow <laughs> a deeper uh, answer to your question is that we are, and we also bring forward the deeper answer in the book is that um the the view that many uh, proponents um of theory of the mind bring forward that the mind is just a machine is wrong so we don't think the mind is a machine why do we say the mind is not a machine because a machine is a logic system that works um, that, that doesn't have the, the, the properties of a complex system. So a machine, the only property of a complex system that a machine usually have is drivenness because you need energy to run the machine. Like in, like the car needs energy or my computer needs energy. However, for the functioning of the machine, um, the, 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 its consumption of energy is irrelevant unless it breaks. You know, so if, if my computer overheats because the cooling doesn't work anymore, then the energy consumption becomes relevant, but otherwise not. Uh, and and so machines are characterized that they are simple or logic systems, um, and and the brain is not a logic system. That's why it's wrong to see the brain as a machine. And that's even true for the brain of very primitive organisms like a fruit fly, which have just very few neurons, but they still can behave in a very rudimentary form intelligently because they can adapt to new situations they haven't encountered. They can find solutions and so on. Not very well, and they, they are very limited, but still they have a rudimentary form of insect intelligence and let alone mammals who have who are very intelligence, have a social life, can even rudimentarily um, teach uh, other uh, non-genetically inherited patterns to their children and so on. And, and, and so this intelligence is not the, the result of a machine, but it's a result of a living uh, animate complex system. And so therefore, philosophically, the analogy to, to make an analogy of the brain um, uh, with a machine is Cartesian, as you mentioned, and it's, it's fundamentally wrong, I believe. And Barry believes, thinks so as well, I think. Yeah. So, do, I mean, the question is, do we need, I mean, so what question is, do we need, you, you make a good case that we can't understand, you know, the human brain and we can't understand complex systems. Um, but can we? We can do a lot without understanding. So if you look at, um, for example, uh, uh, you know, we've uh, domesticated animals, right? We've done selective breeding. People didn't know about genetics or how any of it works very recently. We still don't know exact genes involved, but we can, you know, we can, we can, uh, drive evolution in one way or the other. Um, you know, could something be done similarly with human intelligence? We could have very limited understanding or, or artificial intelligence, you know, or to match human intelligence or surpass it. We could have a limited understanding, um, but we can sort of tinker with machines and design models and sort of build on them and eventually get something that's uh, uh, that's very impressive. Is that one possible route to, to the singularity? So we have, Barry, do you want to, that's the evolution argument. Do you want to start on this? Uh, yes, sure. So the, 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 the evil, the general evolution argument to the effect that you could simulate evolution in the machine in the same way that you simulate the expertise of a, of a Go player, for instance, by having the machine mimic the thousands and thousands of generations which evolution has involved for organisms, but they, they mimic that inside the computer. That's how they imagine they're going to teach, uh, uh, cars to to be driverless. They're going to have cars drive around without drivers, mimicking driver behavior over and over again. Eventually, they will have enough data to be able to train a neural net to behave like a human being. Similarly, if we simulate evolution in the computer, then if we start with a very stupid uh, AI-like uh, starting point, and over and over again, we, we 
uh, kill off the, the more stupid products of each phase of evolution, we'll, we will eventually evolve a truly intelligent AI-like uh, entity. Now, the problem is that we wouldn't know how to, or one problem is that we wouldn't know how to program the computer to do all of that because we don't understand evolution. And most of the data that we would need to understand evolution, we will never have because it's all in the past. And the reason for that is because evolution is a way more complicated problem than intelligence. So there's so much more involved in evolution uh, that we do not understand. To try and mimic it in the computer would be really, really difficult, so difficult as to be impossible. The other, there's another, but you made another important argument, Richard. That's the argument of breeding animals, right? And so um, uh, what's the name of this? Oh, uh, I always forget him. Who is also a singularity proponent, the British philosopher Barry? I can look him up. Um, the one who should go back to uh, Chalmers, no, yeah, the, not Chalmers, the, the other one. Uh, but, but Chalmers also makes the argument. So what the, what they are saying um, is that you can just breed more intelligent humans and breed so long until you get super intelligent humans. You mean um, Bostrom? Yes, that's Nick Bostrom. Thank you. And, and so this is so, and he also thinks of uh, actively manipulating the genome. So if you want to actively manipulate the genome, you, you need to understand how intelligence comes about so that you can change the genes that gene generate intelligence. Now we know that body height, uh, is encoded by 80,000 genetic load size. So it's a pan-genomic inheritance pattern and intelligence even more. But we even don't know how many, prob most of the genome contributes somehow to intelligence. So we don't know at all. So it's, it's so complicated. So many, many, not, not even only the coding genes, but also non-coding genetic uh, um, parts of the genetic code um, uh, uh, contribute to intelligence so that we don't know what to manipulate. So genetic engineering is out and breeding um, is, is, uh, is, is naive because it, it believes that it, it supposes that you can linearly increase, uh, complex trade, um, via, via, uh, via breeding. But how breeding works is that you can isolate traits pretty well or some traits. And if you look at all the variants of dogs that exist has, have been created by breeding, you can see this or, or tulips, but you can't, so to speak, by breeding change the fundamental pattern of the properties. And, and so it's just a lack of knowledge of biology and genetics that brings people like Boston to think that we can maybe breed high intelligence. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go, yeah, we'll go back to the, um, the, 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 the biology and the genetic mm. enhancement. Uh, I wanted to fo follow up on, uh, uh, what Barry said. I, I wasn't Sorry. thinking in terms of, um, no, it's okay. I was, I wasn't thinking of terms of, uh, uh, simulating within the machine, but just, you know, just a, a market system where you have companies, right? They're all trying to do different things. Um, some of them, you know, do better than others, and you know, a very long time scale. Uh, you have creative destruction. You have some, you know, doing better than others, and eventually, you get something that looks like, you know, a super intelligence. Why can't why can't that be just sort of the tinkering and sort of the evolutionary process there? Yeah, so I think that goes back to our basic argument about complex systems versus logic systems. So let's look at a a, a really, I think it's really impressive. Yorps is much more critical in this respect, but I think that Google Translate is really impressive. It's a really useful tool. It's not a good tool for doing good translations, but it's a useful tool for getting a, the gist of a yes. piece of text. How does Google Translate works? Well, it takes a language, let's say the German language, and it fixates it, it fixes it at a time, and it uses that fixed body of German it to, to train a neural net. 
And then it does the same thing for English. It fixes English. And it, it uses then the two bodies, uh, the fixated bodies of linguistic data, translated into ze- sequences of zeros and ones to create a mapping so that you can take a piece of German today and, a, and get a piece of English as output. Now, all of that is done by converting what are incredibly complex systems, namely the entirety of the German language with the X million people speaking it, making up new ways of speaking it every single day. And the entire body of the English language, which is similarly dynamic, they turn both of those dynamic things, dynamic complex systems, into simple systems. And the result is really useful. And in 10 years, it will be even more useful. But but it's useful always only along this narrow, one narrow track, namely getting translation. And it's never, never going to be able to tell jokes or prevent war or take over the universe. It's always just one narrow track. And so the kind of general evolution that you're praying for or fearing or speculating about won't happen because the evolution is always along one narrow track. And that's the same with chat GPT. It's going to be always along this one narrow track. Maybe to add on this with regard to your market uh, argument, it's a very good argument. Yeah. Because, because uh, markets are creative, right? And, and, and it is the history of, of, uh, of the world and especially, uh, the, the place where markets were the most productive, which is, you know, this, How is this, this shape from Northwestern Europe to South, to, to, to Northern Italy, right? Where all this evolution happened uh, in the, in the Renaissance and there are in the modern times. So, so the humans created this evolution and they created amazing new things. And, um, if you, if you subdivide them into technical entities and, and non-technical created entities, the technical entities they created in, in, from, from that time t- until today, Let's say from, from Leonardo's drawings of imaginary planes until today's ISS, right? These are all simple logic systems exploiting laws of physics that were discovered and systematically building the machines. But they are all simple systems. They are amazing. They are, they are super impressive. Think of the Large Hadron Collider and so on. But they are all simple systems, logic systems. They don't, they're not complex systems. Uh, unless they get out of control like Chernobyl. So when you have a, when you have a simple system that get out of control, gets out of control, it becomes a complex system. Um, uh, so this is, this is, um, uh, this is, this is what the market does, but the market, the output of the market, uh, uh with regard to technology is not, is, is not about creating complex systems. The systems then can be used in a complex way. So think, if you think the car, Itself is of course not a complex system. It's a simple system. But if you have a person driving a car, it becomes a complex system because the human being adds the complexity. And also many other non-technical products, which we, which, which the markets have, have created are of course complex, like a novel by Dostoevsky or a piece of music by Brahms. But that's, that's not, um, uh, that's because humans created it. And so spontaneously, um, it's just not, not visible. We don't know how to transform a simple system into a complex system without adding animal or human activity. When we add animal or human activity, we can, we can transform any logic system into a complex system, but without adding it, we don't know. And, and that's, I think, the key point. And so the, so to get complexity, a natural, um, uh, natural system is, has to be involved. Yeah. So 
Can you um so you you touched on something that I, I did a, that I you know read in the book and I, I just want to make sure I'm clear on. Can you talk about the um the the role of driveness um and uh, uh intentions in your idea of what separates uh, animate life and inanimate life? Do you want to start, Barry? So you you do this one. Okay, so drivenness means that there's a flow of energy through a system. And so in in nature, um many many systems are driven. Yeah, so if you think of for example, if you go skiing and the wind is blowing through the snow, you see turbulence, very beautiful patterns of tur- that's a driven system because there's kinetic energy and this kinetic energy is dissipated, turbulence is created, it's very beautiful. If I pour water into this glass from this bottle, I also now I create turbulence and this turbulence is is also a complex and it's also drivenness. It's an it's it's uh inanimate drivenness and then animate drivenness means that the the, the or, there's an organism which can create energy on its own and spend the energy for reproduct for survival and reproduction right so that's why virus and a prion are not uh, animate systems because they can't create energy on their own and and but the, the, the so that's the animate system it can create er- energy on its own and spend it and it has it does it with a certain built-in goal which is survival and reproduction which um which is what life is about. And, and this is both types of, of, um, drivenness lead to, it seems, unsurmountable obstacles in, in mathematical modeling. And so, um, so we can't model turbulence at all. We have no way to, to know it and it seems unmodelable. And that's a, turbulence is a, is an example of a drivenness happening in inanimate systems. And the, and the drivenness in animate systems is much, much stronger because of course we have turbulence all the time in our body. Every time the heart pumps in the aorta, we have a lot of turbulence and we can't model it. And that's, it goes through the whole body. There's everywhere phenomena that are like this for which we have no clue how to model them. We can do very good partial models. We also say this in the book and these partial models have enabled modern medicine, for example, but we can't have the, this overarching model that explains it fully. And that's, that's what drivenness is about. Drivenness creates situations that, that, that make it um, impossible to create holistic mathematical models, inanimate and inanimate nature. And that's also why, why the models that we have of, um, inanimate nature are, are limited. That's why we can't have realistic climate models, for example. Yeah. So when yeah, so when I you know when I hear the the people who are you know believers that AI you know the super intelligence, um, you know the, one of the things that that sort of seems you know made sense to me, but I don't I don't know how how to feel about it now is the idea that basically you know there's nothing you know. You know, we're, if we take a materialist worldview, and you know, you're, you say in your book, you said very clearly, you know, you, you don't think there's any, uh, there's no kind of dualism. There's nothing special about you know human consciousness that makes it different from the rest of rest of nature. Um, you know, the idea is that basically, you know, there's what like why would it be that nature produced something that we cannot match it because in some ways we've you know we've surpassed nature in some things right we have a we have bullet trains that can travel faster than any animal in some ways we're not as you know we're not as good as nature we can't uh uh you know go hunt a gazelle or something make a machine that goes does that the cheetah you know could could go do, could go do something like that is your is your idea is one way to sort of frame it as you do we pro- we underestimate the power of evolution and we overestimate sort of human intelligence because maybe you know the irony is we are just way overestimating human intelligence to think we can reproduce what evolution did blindly you know over billions of years. Now, do you want to take this one? Oh, go ahead. 
So, so there's a, the tradition, uh, in European thinking that has created this kind of, um, hubris. It started with Descartes and then other French guys if, if reinforced it. And so in France, you have many thinkers, um, who believe that you can, um, uh, Laplace, Uh, and Lagrange, they all believe that you can model the universe with, mass with partial differential equations. Lab they were not invented when Descartes worked, but later on they got invented and then, then uh, Lagrange and Laplace believed this. And this is this, and then also, you know, the, um, um, uh, not Gustave Le Bon, what's the name? Um, Auguste Comte believed that you can even model societies with partial differential equations and create, he wanted to create sociology as a branch of mathematics. And so this is a, a, a Cartesian illusion of of that you can re reduce your life to 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 uh, partial differential equations, and it's a, it is it looks uh, it looks uh, compelling at the first glance because these equations seem so powerful, but then you realize very quickly how little you can do with them, how partial they are, because they only model very few variables, and if you have too many variables, you can't use them anymore, and so. So their modeling capability is very limited. And I think that, that the whole, you know, um, thing we are discussing depends on this misunderstanding of, uh, of the extent, uh, of which we can model nature. And it's very, very restricted. And interestingly, all the big physicists like Richard Feynman, but also, um, uh, the Uh, what's his name? We, we quote him, Roger Penrose and many, many other great physicists. They, they say they, they are very aware of the, uh, the, the, the limitations of mathematics and they are aware because when they create the models, they always have to abstract heavily from real nature. So every physics textbook, every problem that is described in physics starts with, now let's assume this, this and this and let's abstract away this and that and then assume this. And so they end up With, with, you know, systems that are highly artificial so that the mathematics can be applied. Nancy Cartwright called this physics as a theater because you have to, in, to, to, you know, to arrange and direct so much before you can bring the mathematics in. And when you look at the real world and every physicist knows this, then it's very different. Then very few phenomena can be, can be explained. And that's why the real applications of physics are all in engineering. Because there you can yourself, yourself decide on the system and build it according to the, what you learned by, from these highly abstracting models. And I think that's very important to acknowledge. And I think that once, once you know how physics work and how physicists model the real world and how mathematics gets applied and how big the discrepancy between mathematical modeling and the real world is, then you can appreciate um, how little we can do. And I think that this is very, very hard uh, to understand because to understand how physics works, there is, Lay people can't. They don't understand the mathematics. They don't understand. I mean, I, although I spend most of my life doing mathematics, when I started to learn physics to write this book a couple of years ago, I had, I was struggling. It's hard to learn. And, and then I realized, wow, yes, I learned thermodynamics and then we could write the book because it's using a lot of thermodynamics, right? And it's, th this is only possible to see the limitations when you've gone through the way that physicists create their models. So 12 years ago, I was invited to, uh, to give a keynote lecture at a big conference on safety in automobile engineering. And it was a conference uh, which was full of people who were already then working on driverless car technology. And I told them that in order to, so, so my, my expertise is ontology, which means I try to find ways in which you can merge different kinds of data 
make data systems interoperable. And I told them that there are so many dimensions of data involved in car driving that to ensure that you had a safe system for a driverless car would take many years. I, I estimated 14 years based upon the fact that testing a drug for safety takes about 14 years. And um, everyone in the room was horrified because they all planned to be out of a job in five years because they thought that there would be driverless cars everywhere within five years. That was the estimation which everyone was talking about at that machine, at that meeting. Now it's 14 years later. And I think we can say that there has been very little advance towards the, the goal of that meeting, which was safe driverless cars. And that's because people overestimated the power of mathematics, which can describe simple systems, and underestimated the complexity of real nature. And uh, so it's still an open question, the degree to which we will have driverless cars. But Jobs and I are convinced that there will never, never be driverless cars which can drive in open environments, which means environments which can include any kind of phenomenon, whether human or animal or weather or uh, uh, earthquakes or anything else. Uh, there will always have to be uh, some kind of uh, human input possibility uh, for cars being driven in open environments. With closed environments, uh, freeways maybe, or San Francisco in the middle of the night maybe, uh, but open environments not. I mean, I mean, you can imagine um, if you were ban human drivers, I think in a few decades, you can actually have uh, traffic systems which are completely automated with individualized vehicles. It, it, I think it's possible, but you have to ban human drivers and you should also ban pedestrians and, and bicycles and so on because they are the problem. They create complex uh, non-ergodicity. And so, so if you could, if you could, I mean, some of the Asian cities I've been to, they look quite like, you know, cities, um, uh, already now that are completely inhuman. And so you could basically, uh, create it if, if the, if If the AI system would only communicate with each other, but even then, the system—it's very, very demanding because the inter—the problem of uh, communicating agents is totally unsolved, and it, it is also a complex system problem. So even if you have many simple systems that should act in coordination, it's probably mathematically unsolvable. So, so even then, you would have to have very strict rules of how the cars would would move, and and a lot of the complexity. The reason, one reason why AI is so overestimated is that what in one's own life, one isn't aware at all of the complexity of what one is doing all the time. And if you speak to, with, of people who had a stroke and who are getting rehab, they are aware of it, how difficult the simple things that we have to do in our daily lives are because they are now handicapped because they had the stroke and then they have to relearn it. And suddenly they realize a bit how enormously complex it is, but we don't When we are naively leading our lives, we don't see it. And that's, I think, another reason why people underestimate the complexity. Yeah. And so as far as people are underestimating or over, underestimating complexity, overestimating what we, uh, what we can know or what we can model, it takes me back because I, you know, my background is in the social sciences and you have these big theories in the social sciences. I don't know if you, you know, there's a guy named Peter Turchin uh, who thinks he can model the course of war. So he'll say at ancient Rome, you know, this happened and this generation was peaceful for this reason and this generation had a collapse. And I've, you know, I've always thought that, you know, I think I independently came to the conclusion that you guys did that this is, this stuff is bunk that this stuff really doesn't 
uh, explain much. And is you know is that is that your feeling about the uh, these sort of social science models that try to model you know uh, macroeconomics, maybe wars, the course of history? Are these just sort of you know are these just sort of a uh, kind of alchemy, a kind of a uh, pseudoscience? I wouldn't call them pseudoscience because one. What is, why do we do humanities? Yeah, Barry and I differ a bit. I mean, we don't differ about why do we do philosophy, but about humanities. My, my, I think humanities are done to provide interpretations of our life, right? And, and so they are, they are very important. Um, and these interpretations can also be very useful, like in psychology, usage of psychology. So, but, 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 but humanities usually can't explain uh, causalities like uh, physics can. Right. And that's because the systems they are dealing with are so super complex. So they can only interpret what's going on. I think these interpretations can be very, very useful for many, many purposes. I mean, um, uh, uh, look at Henry Kissinger. Why was Henry Kissinger such a successful power person, such a successful politician and also advisor for politicians? I mean, he was incredibly genius because he had a lot of political science and history and sociology education. So he could interpret what was going on really well. And that's a great capability, but that shouldn't be uh, confounded or, or, uh, or be taken as being the same as explaining, you know, and, and, and let alone predicting. So that's, of course, completely impossible with the humanities. And I wouldn't say that Kissinger was so successful because he had some model of the way no. the world works or about the way no. war works. On the contrary, he had finger spits and confused. Yes. That is to say, finger intuition, green finger. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're I think you're right. I mean Kissinger is not the sort of uh he was a scholar of international relations, but not the kind of scholar they're producing today. Today the scholar will tell you, you know, uh 35% chance, you know, democracy will collapse in the next five years. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, they they do this, and I I've always found this, yeah, ridiculous. I think we Yeah, it's pathetic. Yeah. So um so yeah, what would you know the final question, I guess, is you know, what what would um you know a lot of smart people just you know disagree with your ideas about the possibility of uh super intelligence uh, coming from machines. Um, what would cause you say the next 10, 15 years, 20 years, whatever arbitrary time scale to change your mind? What, what kind of development could uh, tech companies or somebody produce that would you say, make you say, okay, maybe, maybe a uh, super intelligence is possible. Okay. Very easy to say. If some, if a mathematician uh, and great mathematicians have tried, could come up with mathematical models for complex systems that are holistic and convince me that they can deal with evolutionary change, with non-ergodicity, with behavior-relevant chaos, with context-relatedness, force overlay, and so on. If, if, if mathematicians could come up with a type, new type of mathematics that could model this, I would say, bingo, we are going to get artificial intelligence. The point is that I believe that the structure of our brain on which mathematics is built Right. And which is the grounding and the reason why we can do mathematics is not made to do this. But if somebody can come up with mathematics that can deal with these phenomena, I would say now we are going to go to artificial intelligence. And I would just add that, that I, I disagree with the premise of your question, because the more, the more I, I, I follow the way in which leading AI people, I, I don't now mean the, the, the AI people who are hot on Twitter, I mean the leading AI uh, technicians and theorists, that, that not many of them actually are convinced by the singularity talk or by the idea that there will be artificial and general intelligence. So I'm thinking yeah. of, of somebody like Gary Lucas, who is, uh, is, he's not completely on our side, but... Gary Marcus. 
uh, Marcus, he's yeah. he's not completely on our side, but he gets very close to the views that we defend, and he has exactly the same view about Chat GPT. He thinks it's a parlor game, so it's, it's a nice toy that you can fiddle with, but uh, it's it's going to be abandoned very soon because it's yeah. uh, for but, any. But use- doesn't Bost- doesn't Bostrom in his uh, book doesn't he have uh, um, doesn't he have uh, surveys of artificial intelligence researchers and don't they say that in some normal you know some not too far distant future? Yes. Yes. Um, uh, so I, I think we would have to look at how how prejudiced his choice of the people he surveyed might have been. I think he has a biased selection, and it's, it's, very, it's easy to get a biased selection because most of the people. So you you need to you know you need to understand physics, thermodynamics, mathematics, theory of mathematics, uh, theory of mind. I mean, there's a lot. Uh, basically, you also need to understand quite a bit about human language because it is the highest expression of intelligence that we have. So you need to, or one of the highest, um, but if you, if you see composing music and drawing works of art also, so these are ways of, of, uh, that all of this you need to understand. And, and, and I think that the, the people who predict the singularity are really, if you, if you, if you look at their writings, they just lack education. That's the problem. They lack education. If you're really well educated in, in a holistic sense, you know, and no sciences and have thought through mathematics and physics, I know no mathematician or physicists. I mean, with the exception of, of people who don't haven't thought sufficiently, but who thought about the problem of AI and who are proponents. The proponents, the loud proponents actually have no clue. I think no matter how many neural networks they've engineered, they, they are unable to reflect what they are doing. And this is, by the way, very, very typical of scientists traditionally, that scientists are not very good at thinking about philosophically about what they're doing. There are some exceptions, like Ernst Mach was a great exception, but there are not so many. Most of them can't reflect what they're doing. And that's why, that's why they, they predict the singularity. Mm. So yeah, so Yopes, uh, you said you said though that if someone developed a new mathematics, that's a very you know sort of theoretical and abstract. Is there something that like a machine can do X that would just blow you away and say that you know I would have never suspected this and this sort of uh, 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 this sort of you know makes me rethink things? Is there is there something okay. that, like the machine could do a podcast interview with you? Is something, no, is there something it, it can do that? Yeah, that, if a machine could pass, so the the the, the, the Turing test, we have a kind of. Uh, described in the book and one of our papers in an enhanced version of the Turing test. And if the machine could pass the enhanced version of the Turing test, I would say, okay, now it's intelligent, but it, but it won't. And this enhanced version is really not a three minute conversation via chat interface, but a real face to face conversation where the machine has to understand facial expression, the nuances of the voice and react appropriately on various topics and, and, and actually display intersubjectivity. So now if the machine could in such a conversation display intersubjectivity, like in it's shown in the movie Ex Machina, where the machine, which is fictional, where the machine displays intersubjectivity, then I would believe now we have artificial intelligence. Mm. So in the, in the point of the, I mean, the original Turing test is that you could fool a human being and your, your extensive Turing test is, is beyond that, right? It's not just you fool a human being. There has to be something more, but when you say it shows inner subjectivity, that seems itself to be sort of subjective. Is there an a, objective test that everyone no, would agree I think on? Subjectivity can be tested for. So, I mean, it, it would, but Barry, what would you say on this? So it, it, probably it's useful to describe the enhanced Turing test. So um, it's based upon the Stasi in East Germany. The, 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 so the Stasi interrogator would take four hours to find out whether somebody was telling the truth. And the way you do it is you go through their life history. 
and you test their uh, the, the the strength of their emotional re- responses when you when you they are asked to just. De- they're asked to describe their mother and their relation to their mother and the people down the street who were noisy and so on. And you, you watch the, uh, the, the emotional reactions. You have to gauge them from the speech of the machine. Uh, that was the way the Stasi worked. And that would mean that every computer would have to have a life history, a, a, a cover story, which would be able to answer the kinds of questions that humans answer. And then... A cover story for a, a human is very difficult to uh, replicate if it's not your life because you have to replicate all the emotions which go together with having such and such a mother or brother or having having a close relative die young and so on. And that's hard to... That, that's also, the that, that, would, that would be that, that's requiring measure. you to have a human level intelligence. So what, what if we just, uh, you know... Uh, uh, so the the Turing test. So I guess would it, would the test be would the test be just it's a, it's a it's a Turing it's a Turing test. The, the the objective data you're looking for is if somebody is fooled by them, they're indistinguishable from a real human, right? Is that the data? And it just has to be longer. It's just longer, longer, but also much more multidimensional. Uh, so uh, uh, exactly in the way that Stasi interrogators uh, they they w- want to know everything about you. And they want to see how you react. And if you react in an authentic way, then that is a good clue that you're telling the truth. And if you do that over four hours, you get a really good measure of whether you're telling the truth. And that measure would be equally useful as a measure of... Uh, of now, but, but to test for animal intelligence... But, but your question is very good. So you could also figure out such a test for animal intelligence. And this you could have to do, would have to do by setting a machine in an open world scenario, letting it, letting it do tasks in the open world scenario. And there's this, this uh, robotic specialist whom we also quote in the book. At the moment, I fail to remember his name. In chapter three and in, late, in, in chapter 13, we quote him, Barry, maybe you can quickly look him up while I'm talking. I, I'm on holiday. I don't have any books. Uh, I could look him up, but it doesn't matter. He, he, um, uh, he, he describes that, that animal intelligence should be tested by letting animals really do complex tasks in open environments where unexpected events can happen, like it happens, you know, in a, in a forest or in a jungle. And, and then, then I would say if the machine would perform this, it would also, I would see it as, and it should also be able to collaborate in a flock with other animals or in a herd. And so this, this is a type of, of to test an animal. And, and I think that would also convince me that we have achieved animal, animal intelligence, which would, which would be great because then we could, you know, delegate a lot of work to this intelligence. But we are not anywhere near this at all. Not okay. even for insect. Hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we have a. I'm glad we have a. You know, a, a sort of an empirical test that we can. We can. We can have. We have that benchmark. Um, <laughs> is, you know, so you know the, the you know these uh, the book is sort of you know overwhelming. Sort of these argument. You know, these uh, these debates are sort of overwhelming, even for a very uh, you know sp- even for very smart people. And you know, uh, you I think talked about oh, you have to know something about uh, you know uh, philosophy, something about biology, something about chaos theory. Um, I guess you know I'll end by asking: Is there you know if someone just wants to sort of look into you know what is what is for you the most convincing is sort of the most uh, important thing to understand besides read your book you know if i just have the time to look into one or two things um to really uh, to get the best you know the best version of the argument of why machines will take it over the world how would you would you give any advice to sort of you know either specific readings or sort of what fields to look into uh, so if if you want to understand the limitations of mathematical models in nature and understand it by one of the best physicists of the 20th century. You can read volumes one and two of Richard Feynman's lectures in physics. And because even, you know, 
even in those two, that's, and these are not, these are only covering classical physics. Quantum mechanics is only at the end of volume two and then in volume three. There's a bit of quantum mechanics in volumes one and two, but very little. But so it's without quantum mechanics and without general theory of relativity, which is, which is inaccessible for the non-mathematician. But the mathematics required to understand volumes one and two is, is not, it's undergraduate mathematics of the simpler kind. It's possible to, to grasp it. Feynman even re-explains the mathematics for non-mathematicians in the book and so on. And so these books give you a very good impression of how one of the great, or the, one of the two or three greatest physicists of post-World War II, um, uh, so the, the, the first generation after the, the very greatest after, you know, after Bohr and, and Einstein, how he sees the limitations of physics. And it's so clear on every, on every, you know, almost every chapter, the way he, 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 he makes a difference between the real nature and the, the kind of models that physicists create. It's so modest and beautiful. So if you understand this, you also understand the basic argument of our book. And at the opposite extreme, people should read chapter 12, which is about the, the, the various ways in which people hanker after, uh, life in a superhuman universe. So why they read science fiction and why Nick Bostrom uh, creates science fiction uh, in answer to this need. Uh, the science fiction being the idea, for instance, that we could evolve superintelligence by uh, selective mating, raising the power of human IQ by 40, exactly 43.2 points, he said. Um, Rodney Brooks, by the way, is the name of this great robotics okay. specialist. Yeah. Who's the Ro Rodney Brooks? Rodney He's Brooks, an American um, robotics yeah, specialist. Still what? He's still he's alive. Still, and yeah. he has a, he has a very close view of intelligence that we have. And he has developed it just from thinking about how to build intelligence insects. And it's, I, I really like him a lot because he puts, and he has basically defined the AI test for animals. He's really good. Okay. Great. Okay. Yeah. We'll put the links to, to all of that. Okay. Uh, Barry Yopes, thank you. This has been a great conversation. Thank you very much. For oh, thank you. Thanks for taking the time. It was a pleasure talking to you.